A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Welcome to The Chemical Show. This week, I am talking with Brad Beauchamp, who is CEO of Carpenter Company, which is one of the world's largest producers of flexible polyurethanes, foams, processed polyester fiber, and comfort cushioning products. You might remember that Brad was actually my first guest on The Chemical Show, so I'm really excited to have him back today. 2021 was pretty significant for Brad. So number one, he was first guest on The Chemical Show. That's significant. Number two, he was named to the 2021 power list by Virginia Biz. So that's pretty awesome too. Anyway, maybe you'll tell us about it. Maybe you won't. Anyway, Brad, welcome to the Chemical Show. Thanks for having me again. And, you know, I, I enjoyed the first time. And I, when you asked me if I would come back on, I, I was excited to find time to do it. So awesome. Well, I'm glad, absolutely glad to have you here. So 21 was a wild year. I think we thought that we'd put the chaos of 2020 and the rearview mirror and and then along came 2021. What was really significant for you guys for Carpenter in 2021? You know, I almost, when we were, you sent me a note, you said, Hey, what topics do you want to cover? And I came up with a long list of stuff. And I thought, well, this show is either I'm going to bore everybody or it's, uh, you know, way too long. You'll have to do a, like in the old days, a double album, right. You know, for, you know, we had a lot of stuff going on. Everybody had COVID issues that they were dealing with. And, you know, whether we thought we would get mostly through that partway through the year or not, obviously we're still in dealing with it, you know, with, I'll get it wrong, the Omicron or whatever version we're on now. Right. You know, so we're still working through that. We had, you know, late in 2020 was when Mr. Pauly, our owner passed away. So really 2021 was me and our executive team, you know, finding our way without somebody who had been in the organization for 60 plus years. So that was interesting as well. And the board and everything else. And then, you know, you know, you were aware of, we had the Texas freeze that came in, right? At chemicals. And then right after that, we had a uh, cyber attack on our business. And then we uh, ran from that into an a fairly large acquisition. So, and I think that Sprinkled in with all that, there was unusually high demand and shortages of raw materials just to add a little extra fun to the to the year that we had. So it was quite a year when you think about it. So I, mean, I know you don't want to hit all the topics, but you can pick a couple and yeah. we'll talk well, about Yeah, well, that is them, a so. whole lot of complexity. And you know what? I'm going to be honest. I've been told that people are tired of talking about COVID and so am I. So we're parking that one because that just appears to be an underlying condition we're going to have to deal with. And I think that's it. So I'm really actually interested in your cyber attack. So I know you shared a little bit with me previously about it, but and in fact, cyber attacks were pretty big in the news early in 2021. And you know, I think they probably occur far more often than people realize. So what happened to Carpenter and why did they target Carpenter? Maybe it's even a good question. 
So on the why side, what you, you know, you think, well, am I, as a company, are we somehow special? Are we more vulnerable? And it's really a, it's really a numbers game. They're, they're trying to attack everybody, every way possible, every government institution, every business is probably under daily attack, maybe even hourly attack is one of the things you learn is that these guys are, the entities are trying to get at you no matter what and find their way in. You know, it takes a lot of effort to keep them out and to let them in is really just, you know, you can make one mistake. One person in one location can make one mistake and and all of a sudden they're in. That's really how it how it came about with us is we have pretty robust systems, but somebody had received a, a phishing email really from somebody from the outside that they were familiar with. And what happened was, is that other company had been successfully attacked and they were using them to try and get into other businesses. So that's really how it got into our system. And we were a little lucky, a lot lucky, I guess, in a couple of ways. One is they had only been in our system for a couple of weeks. So usually what they like to do, at least from what we gathered and talking to the cyber experts is they'll get into your system. They like to root around looking for things They, you know, they kind of try different doors or try to get into different subsystems and collect data. And, you know, those subsystems have different levels of protection. So like in R&D, they tried multiple times to get into our R&D server and weren't able to get in, and, you know, those kinds of things. But they'll root around as long as they, they're not found out. Are they bots or, I mean, what do you know? Are they bots or yeah, are these so hackers? It's a, it's, it's a program. Okay. And what we learned was, you know, when we contacted the authorities and everyone else, they really had two questions for us. They said, were they asking for money or not? And that helps them determine. So I guess in a broader sense, if, if you're getting ransomed, then it's really like a Eastern European outfit that's doing it, Russian, Ukrainian, something like that. If they're really just after your technology and information, then they believe it's kind of more of an Asian-based North Korea and other type of thing. And ours was really, they were looking for ransoms. So they said, hey, that was one clue that it was Eastern European. The other clue was that if any of our computers had the default language set to Russian or Syrian, it would not infiltrate those computers. It would leave them alone. Interesting. Now, unfortunately, we don't have any Russian computers. So therefore... Yeah. yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. How did you guys even discover this? So it was interesting. I was actually on my way to the airport early in the morning and I got a call from our IT director, which, you know, is never good for seeing like 5.30 in the morning. And he says, we got a, a problem. We've been hacked. And I said, well, okay, well, we don't know yet. We don't know what's going on, but we're, we kind of shut it all down. And he, he said to me, Ed, which is one of our, one of our IT guys, is a great guy, was, had gotten contacted overnight by one of our locations in Europe on a different problem, was helping them with the problem IT-wise, and then saw something that wasn't right and started looking at that. That's when the hackers realized we were onto them and they just started tripping wires and systems. I, I liken it, you know, I'm not an IT guy. So I said, oh, it's kind of like in Die Hard where they're wiring up the Nakatomi building, right? You know, until, until he comes along and spoils the plan, right? And that's what they did is they kind of flipped, tried to flip a bunch of switches to kill our computers or lock us out. And we the best thing you can do in that situation is cut off access to the internet because those programs can't talk their masters without the internet. So our guy knew well enough to start closing down the internet. So we closed down the internet all that the way around. That can't be easy either because everything we do now is internet-based, it seems. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of internet connections and things you don't even think about and systems that are plugged into your systems and stuff like that. So 
we did that. We got the word out to everybody. We told our sales teams, which was good. We didn't, you know, the phones weren't corrupted and any computers that weren't actively connected to the network were probably safe. But we told everybody in, in sales, hey, go into your local location, manufacturing location, and get in contact with your customers. Let them know what's going on. Tell them that we don't have visibility of their orders and start working, you know, literally with pads of paper or writing down what orders are open and, and getting that info. And so we had kind of an all hands on deck scenario where we were saying, okay, we gotta we gotta keep producing, we gotta keep making product, we gotta, you know, keep, you know, we notify our customers, but we gotta keep them whole and up and running and everything else. And right. I mean, because as you say, because this happened right after the freeze, am I right? So Things were probably a little chaotic anyway. Demand was disrupted in multiple ways and you want to keep serving your customers. Yeah. And our demand was probably at that running that point about 20% over what it was the previous year from the coming up from the chemicals. So we were at a high peak of demand and you've got this going on where everybody wants more and more and more and they don't really want to hear. They were all our customers were really great, but they, you know. It's like, okay, you had this problem, but are you still going to be able to ship me rolls of carpet cushion or the parts that I need or the cut pieces of foam? And you learned a whole lot about SAP and the systems computers really do for you. Our estimate would be that we're we're probably 50% less efficient doing it by manual processes when we, because we did that for a while, right? A couple of weeks where we had probably about two weeks where everything was being done manually. And some things go really easy, right? The chemical plant for us was pretty straightforward. They could plug in recipes, they could run it, they could, the Delta V systems weren't affected by it, that kind of stuff. But you get to like a, a plant where we're processing a block of foam and a block of foam might get 90 or 100 cuts in it. And now all of a sudden those have to be entered in manually, right? So somebody takes a piece of paper, puts in the code, hits enter, and the next one line, you know, they had to enter in the, all those line by line. And then of course, things like printing labels and and all that stuff was having to be done manually as well. So we went back to the stone ages, I guess. How did you guys recover from this? So fortunately, they weren't as far gone as, as systems weren't as corrupted as, as they could have been if they had been in there longer. And we, you know, like everybody else, we run backups. So what you're trying to do is figure out how far back you have to go before you were corrupted, right? So we used a third-party company that looked at that and of course, the third-party company is kind of funny because they're like, well, can you just leave the system alone so that we can do like investigative work to figure all this out? And we're like, what do you mean leave it alone? And they're like, well, don't touch it. Don't do anything for like six or eight weeks. And we're like, well, that's not feasible. We can't just like leave it no, there. No, we have a business to run. Yeah, Right, absolutely. exactly. Yeah. So we had to balance that out with them. What could we help them to do? But what did we have to do for you know the business? And they were able to give us a, hey, we think going back to this date is okay. And, and we had can use our backup servers, which are slower and all those kinds of things to get kind of back up and running. And we basically kept the internet shut off really almost through most of last year until we built up systems that we felt were sufficiently enough that we could then you know kind of regain access to the internet. So we recreated certain connections, right? You know, you're doing electronic payments and other things. You allow those to be okay. You know, you learn a lot about like an IT system because it's like, well, somebody might say, well, I want access to go to so-and-so's website. And IT can say, okay, we will give you access to that. 
But it turns out the way websites work really well is there's a, a bunch of different pages within there and they're almost like independent pages. So you have to grant access to those independent pages unless you're just allowing kind of free access. We take certain things for granted, right? Oh, I'll click through to the next web page, the next this, and it all works efficiently until you have to have credentials for each of the pages. And then our IT guys are like, well, to set up that particular, let's say American Express required 35 access approvals, right? To get them back up and running and that kind of stuff or Wells Fargo or somebody, you know, so it's definitely complex. Yeah. That really impacted your business. It sounds like. So what'd you guys learn from it? How does it changing how you operate? How does it change how you work with your customers today? So, you know, the customers at first, they, they, which we would do if we were the customer, right? Is, okay, that's terrible. How can we help, right? All that kind of stuff. And then they moved from, a, well, were we compromised in this at all, right? And so we had to investigate and make sure that somebody didn't take our info and was trying to use it to get into their system or somehow they were able to, because of EDI or something, get leap into, into their system, which they weren't, right? So you provide them the assurances, and you look at it, and then our IT guys work on what they call hardening the systems, right? Making sure less and less things can get through. We had already had a pretty robust you know, cyber program ourselves where we would test our own employees. Myself or others would get random emails. And if you, if you click on it and you weren't supposed to, you get put into, you, know, you have to go to a training class to get retrained again, right? We already had that. So you're like, well, what more could we be doing in that regard? And really, what are, the best way I can kind of describe it, again, not being an IT guy, is we created a virtual internet. So like our people can go into the internet, but they're not really out on the World Wide Web without being in kind of a secure room for it, in essence. It's interesting. So almost a sandbox of sort, a safe sand, internet sandbox. How does that factor, though, with like phones? Like, I mean, half of my computing is done via my iPhone. Yeah. So the, the phone system runs on a different exchange server. So there were some different things with it. And actually, you know, the fact that our phones weren't corrupted were pretty helpful to us because that ended up being the, the main computer communication with customers, right? Is, but it was funny because a bunch of people, myself included, you know, switched over to personal email addresses. So you had to notify customers. So a lot of customers... Now they would normally have carpenter.com you know, in their system. Now they're getting an email from Brad, but it's coming from Comcast and it goes into their spam. So they weren't getting it either, right? So our people are like, well, we don't accept Gmail addresses, right? Because those can be spam. And we're like, no, this is, this is legitimately my new address for the next month, right? And yeah, it was... You know, it almost seems like a distant memory now, but you know, it was... Well, because a lot of other things I think have happened... That's true. But in March and April, it was, you know, it was front and center getting us, you know, through it and running it. And and how do we harden the systems? And, you know, they're always, the criminals are always trying to find new and better ways to get in. And so you have to try and find new and better ways to keep them out and, and to be able to do what you want to do. You realize when you don't have the computers working, how much they really do for you and how much more efficient they make your business, right? So you can't say, well, we're just going to chuck it and go back to typewriters, right? That's not going to work either. So you have to find a way to live with the risk, I guess. Right. I mean, absolutely. And in the digital age that we're in, and I think, you know, chemical industry, I think still has a long way to go from a digitization perspective. And yet there is already so much interconnectedness in terms of how ordering happens and EDI and, you know, automatic payments and just the whole operating of plants and business systems, et cetera, that 
yeah, it's hard to imagine, right? If you had to stop it. You know, and what, what I found out too was there was a lot of there was a lot of grace that was going around. You know, I don't know that that term doesn't use get used a lot, but when you've been in business a long time, you need and, and you have that situation, you need your suppliers to extend you grace, right? They need to understand that, hey, I want to pay you, but but I can't right now. And our history of being a good payer and you know, those kind of things worked out really well for us, right? And the relationships you have in the industry. And the same thing downstream, right? We're like, look. You know, we're going to be doing these manual invoices. We're nowhere asking you a lot, but our own people, you know, perform great in the process. And we were really thankful that both the suppliers and customers were really understanding and willing to work and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, it really helped when somebody says, Look, I can't give you a PO for a rail car of TDI. Can you still send me that rail car at TDI? And they say, yeah, we got you. No problem. Right. Yeah. yeah that's, so. pr- that's impressive. Right. I mean, you're right. I think it's about the strength of the relationship, the trust that your suppliers have in you, that your customers have in you and stuff. Those are all really important. So you get some nice things out of it, right? You get to, you know, even though it's hard, you get to smile a little bit when you see the people at Carpenter doing, you know, stepping up and really doing great work in the midst of all of it and that kind of stuff. And it just kind of puts a smile on your face that way, even though it sucks. The event, just seeing how people you know come together and perform is is a nice thing to see. I do. So. I think that is awesome. That is really awesome. All right. So that was the first crazy part of the year. And then I know you guys got busy in M&A, right? So I mean, M&A activity was really, it spiked over the past year across the industry, right? You guys have been involved in a number of acquisitions. And I know most recently I've seen the announcement about Rectasil's engineered phones business. So a couple of different questions in this area, but let's, you know, what role does M&A play for you guys? So I would have said in the past, we have been pretty heavily a tire kicker. We kick a lot of tires and don't do a lot of deals. And I'm, I'm not a deal guy, so I can't say, oh, what should be the normal percentage? It just feels like you look at a lot of things without ever really getting to that, you know, getting to the altar, let's say. And then maybe that's normal, but, you know, and we would typically look at things that were fairly small, you know, one or two site locations, that kind of thing. And, and so, you know, we're always kind of looking, but we hadn't really pulled a lot of triggers and really kind of around that same time with the cyber, as I'd mentioned, uh, Mr. Pauly had passed away in November. So the board and, and my team, we were all talking about you know, strategy and where things should go and and what do we see? And, you know, one of the things we were talking about was a little bit of geographic diversification for ourselves, particularly in Europe. If you look at North America, we have a very strong footprint. In Europe, we tend to be Western and Northern European and not as strong in the South and East. With the board, we were kind of talking about that saying, how do we get a better geographic footprint? At the same time, you know, we, as you mentioned at the beginning, we're really well known for our comfort, flexible foam materials. And so another thing that I identified with the board was we'd like to kind of diversify away from comfort and into other polyurethanes, right? And things that, that would give us, you know, similar chemicals, similar chemistries, but, you know, kind of a market or product diversification. And so, you know, with those two subjects coming along, we were just kind of talking about things and, at that moment, in I want to say probably was early May, Rectacell had received a, a hostile takeover bid. They're a public company, and they received a hostile takeover bid from a former JV partner called Griner out of Austria. And so that got us to thinking. You know, we did talk to the board a little bit, and they were like, "Well, is there something? Is that something you'd be interested in? And is it something that 
and what does that all mean and where does it fit and talking and those kind of things. And the more we talked about it, the more we thought, you know, they have some interesting, the company, Rectocell itself is an interesting company for Carpenter. And previous to that, Rectocell, just kind of winding the, the timeline back, had recently bought a, another competitor in Europe in the technical foam business, which tends to be more automotive and industrial and less comfort called Foam Partner. And we had looked at Foam Partner back about three years ago. And I really liked that that acquisition, but we didn't go forward and Rectocell got it. So when it came back around, I said, look, I, at least I'm familiar with Foam Partner and I like that. So maybe there's something here for us. And you know, so Rectocell, we, we kind of got together and talked about whether there was something that could, could happen or not could happen. And we started going over there and digging into it. And the more we the more we looked at it, the more we liked it, right? And it's easy to, I guess you say, you know, fall in love with something. But the reality is, it's not a perfect geographic fit. It's a really good, it helps us geographically. It does do the market diversification that we want. But what I learned a lot in the process is, the more we got to talk to different people, the, the more we really liked the people that they had and, and feeling that they looked at the world in, a, in the similar ways that we do. And so that really kind of encourages a lot is that, you know, if you're going to do something that's really big, you almost have to kind of have the similar worldview on some things. Otherwise, it's going to be a challenge. And so. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, fit the whole cultural and operational and mindset fits important because otherwise, I mean, so many deals don't create value because they haven't landed some of those crucial pieces about how do you actually tie together, not just the assets, but the people, the business, the culture, et cetera. Yeah. And before we jumped on, I was in a meeting where internally we were just talking about all of that, right? And, and job titles and, and all those kinds of you know, softer things that'll come down because we haven't closed on the deal. Well, you know, the process worked. We put together an offer for and what they call their engineered foams business, which is the flexible part of their business. Their board approved it, recommended to the shareholders. Then we had a shareholder vote or they had a shareholder vote because they're a public company December 6th, I think it was that Monday, maybe that's the 8th and got approval. And now we go to close, right? Get through the regulatory. Yeah. yeah there's still so a lot thinking, of work that needs to happen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there was a lot of work at the beginning. I think I personally flew back and forth to, because they're based out of Brussels. I think it was eight times between wow. July and So you December. actually got frequent flyer miles in 2021. I, I got a lot of frequent <laughs> flyer miles, a lot more than I was bargaining for. And you know, I went over there for for the last right in advance of the shareholder meeting and and everything else. And you know, there was just even up to that end because it was a, basically because there was a hostile takeover and they were a public company. There was a lot of stuff involved in it and a lot of deadlines and timing and. It was, it was a very compressed time frame, so you felt very rushed through the whole process a little bit. And, and, I bet, you know, and especially for a company that hasn't taken on that big of an acquisition in the past, it's yeah, um, it's a lot. Yeah, to I do mean, with. You, you know, you saw it's an enterprise value of six hundred and fifty-six million euros, right? I mean, it's almost increasing our size by a third, right, as a total company, right? So, yeah, it's. I guess you go big or go home. Isn't that what they say? So yeah, that's you know. right. I was just listening to that, to a song by that, about that. So yeah, that's funny. Was the hostile takeover competitor a factor in it for you? Or was that kind of compartmentalized off? 
it's kind of compartmentalized. Car- I'm having a hard time saying that word out. <laughs> it was separate, right? We didn't yeah, really think we much about, um, we didn't think much about that. We knew that that was a, you know, that they were out there and they were lurking and that, that influenced obviously timing and, and other things. And, and even how the, the deal got structured, those were all influenced by that. I mean, I think if Rectacell had looked back without this and then said, well, you know, we kind of want to sell the business, we would have been one of the people they probably would have called to, and we would have done a normal courtship, maybe it'd take a year to get familiar. But we had this compressed time frame of like, and and you can you get aligned philosophically? Can you not? Is you know, we understood the the business aspects of it pretty well, right? We know it's easy to look at locations or look at facilities and say, I like that equipment or I don't like that equipment. But kind of getting behind that to the next layers was under kind of duress or under a compressed time frame. And that's where, you know, when the board, my board asks, you know, that's kind of what they want to know is those other things too, right? In addition to why why is it a good fit? What makes sense? But, you know, how do you feel about the people involved in it? Because one thing I would say that kind of helped make the deal work is we were pretty people light over in Europe. We have a good organization, but we were always looking to add more people. In fact, that would have been one of the goals for 2021, 2022 is beef up our European management structure a bit. And so obviously the Rectocell acquisition, because we had we were looking for that kind of stuff anyway, lends itself pretty well to say, look, you know, they got really good people and and it's not one of these where it's, uh, oh, we're going to squeeze a bunch of synergies out of this. And we're a strategic buyer, not you know private equity guys. We're looking to make value out of it for the long term with, you know, but we are jumping from you know 4,500 employees to like 7,000 employees now. And I've spent a lot of time over the break trying to figure out how you do communications and those things internally well, right? How do the people that come on board and our existing people how do they feel part of an organization and part of a, something that's bigger than themselves, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think benefits, so to speak, is it's clearly an acquisition, right? So there's an expectation of blending into Carpenter as opposed to trying to, if it was positioned more as just a Joey venture or a partnership or whatever, where there's an expectation that you're creating a new culture. I mean, there's probably a new culture that comes out of it or a, an evolved culture, but it's they're going to come in and they need to fit in with you guys without losing all the good and the benefits and the uniqueness of them. So that's, it's a challenge. Yeah, and, so, and how, still, so have you figured out how you're tackling mix. it? <laughs> <laughs> I am not. They're still, they are still in the mix of integrating the phone partner side of it. So we really got kind of three organizations you're trying to meld together and largely, you know, the acquisition is largely European. I mean, you know, 80% of the, the sales and revenues are generated in Europe. 10% for Rectocell is US and 10% is Asia. Now it gives us, you know, it's Carpenter. We've never been involved in Asia. So, you know, that we really like that aspect of it as well. So, you know, even though we weren't specifically saying, look, we want to do that, it's a nice add-on to what we're doing. And, you know, the North American part we would view is pretty more straightforward, right? It's small, bite-sized. We got a good structure over here. It's in Europe where we're basically doubling our size, right? Yeah. So so I guess that means more frequent flyer miles for you as well this year. Yeah, it does. Or or the team and everything else. The team. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And and I guess... And I guess until the deal is truly done, you can, there's limited, you're limited in what you can do, right? You can do the preparations, but you can't really take action. Yeah. So we're working with, you know, various consultants on our side 
and they're they've set up these you know whatever you call them clean teams or whatever else they use for it so they deal with us then they they know what they know on that side and they get everything kind of ready so that you know on day one you can kind of when the close happens you can kind of put it together and say okay that we got a we got a plan from the very beginning on it but it is weird to be like okay what what do you get to talk about and what don't you get to talk about and and you got to make sure you're pretty clear on that because if something happened and it weren't you were to fall apart or something, you're back to being competitors in the market somewhat. Although, you know, the reality is, which is why we like the deal is, is they're really not in a lot of markets. They don't, we don't see them and they don't see us. They do have, you know, they would, I would say 15% of their business globally is, is comfort. So it does compete with us, but 85% of it are customers that we don't know today. Right. And so obviously we're excited about that part, but it, it makes it a little bit easier to talk about some things, I guess. Or look at it from a regulatory standpoint, right? Which is where you got all these countries and you're like, can it get through? And you know what's going to happen? And there was minimal overlap. So we that's one of the encouraging things was we felt like it wouldn't get hung up in a lot of regulatory. Not that there won't be questions, but you know it is when you start looking at their top 10 customers, let's say in a given region and our top 10, there really isn't going to be much overlap. So that's good. And that's good. So it's really create its true growth for you guys as well, right? So it moves you into some new playing fields. Yeah, exactly. So we're excited about that. We're going to try and bring the best of what we think we do and take the best of what they think you know they do and, and try not to say, well, you're not doing it the right way, right? It's trying to understand you know, and try and really make it after the fact, looking at it and saying, boy, we really were able to pull again, the best of everything out of it is what we're trying to aim for. So yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So you, you know, Carpenter has such a strong culture, which I think is amazing. And one of the areas that I'm talking to people about a lot this year and focusing in on is just the whole customer experience and really how does the employee experience and culture, how does that translate to your customer experience and your customer relationships? So how do you see that playing out? Well, you know, I like to think of it at the standpoint that if the employees are excited and love their jobs, then then that kind of enthusiasm is contagious, right? It's infectious. Although in a COVID world, we probably shouldn't use. We don't want to be too infectious, (laughs) right? But I I think it comes out, right? I mean, everybody you know meets somebody and and they just you know they you can tell they're excited about something or they have enthusiasm about what they're doing and why they're doing it, right? And you know, so what we try to do is find ways within the company to try and foster that in all aspects. You know, I, I want people to wake up in the morning and say, I, you know, I can't wait to get to work. I realize not everybody does that, but you know, you want that and you want people to say, Hey, how can I be better today than I was yesterday? Right. And you feel like that those kind of things then translate downstream into the customers, right? The customers can pick up that vibe. You know, as I was learning our flexible phone business or our fiber business, you know, a lot of the feedback I would get from customers is you guys got right on it in terms of products, right on it in terms of quality and delivery and service. And yeah, we can do some things better. You know, there's some things sometimes where people bring us, I think, new ideas or new ways. And we tend to kind of say, hey, and we take too long on some things, right? We need to get better on responsiveness or better on maybe customers and say on innovation, right? They're like, you make great foam at this, but when I ask you to do something a little bit different, then it then it gets a little wonky, right? And we we got to get better on those kinds of things and listen to the customer better and and try and you know get up to speed either faster. I think you got to do one of two things faster. You either got to tell them that's not us and we can't help you, so you're not stringing them along, 
and tell them, or you got to say, look, we're interested and then work hard to get to that resolution as fast as possible because, you know, people, they just don't want to wait, right? You know, they have an idea, they see a business opportunity. Every day that you're dragging your feet on it is a day that they can't then have that product and generate sales for themselves and everything else. So, you know, I think there are some things within Carpenter that we we need to do better in that regard. And, and but it is kind of interesting to figure out how does that all tie in together? And is it all just, you know, I still think I'm 54 years old. So I guess I'm getting up there, but, you know, I still feel like people do business with people, right? And so we emphasize a really human element to what we're doing and not, hey, go to the website and get the info you need, right? It's Or directing them this and, you know, self-service. I think self-service is great, right? My kids, you know, who are in their 20s, right? They, they're good with that. They gear into that. And how do you design systems so that the people who maybe are more introverts or don't really want to talk to somebody to get the answer can still get the answer? But how do the people who say, look, I just, I picked up the phone to ask you to help me. I want you to help me and not through a bunch of voicemail prompts get to the answer, right? So how do you blend that? I think what did somebody say? There's four, is it four or five generations in the workplace now, you know? Yeah, something like that. Boomer. Yeah. So yeah. you've got to try and meet everybody a little bit at where they're, where the, how they're used to doing business, right? Right, you know, and, right. And I think that's one of the pieces. figuring that out is challenging, right? It is challenging. And the whole customer journey, which, you know, if I was just talking to somebody about this yesterday and we're saying, you know, people in the chemical industry don't really use that terminology very well, although we recognize it, right? How do customers find you? How do they learn about your products? But creating that seamlessness, whether they're getting it online or direct from a person and doing it in a way that still fits your core values, fits the way that you want to do business, and that they recognize the unique value that you bring to the market is critical. Exactly. And it's not easy. Yeah. And I was talking to someone the other day, we were, you know, some of the the people, you know, and I don't, I'm pretending like I get it, but you know, one of the things I was explaining to somebody is we have a consumer business that deals with like pillows and pet beds and stuff. And I'm always amazed at how fast the buyers in those categories change over, right? So at Petco, there's a new buyer, right? Well, in general, those new buyers, they don't know anything about Carpenter, right? So you have to re-educate them about who it is. But I think a lot of times those people, before you come in to visit them, they've already done some things. They've looked at LinkedIn or Instagram or other things to formulate opinions. And then you're just in there either reinforcing their preconceived notion of you or not. So the message for some of our folks is, is how do we set the table right for the salespeople before they ever come in, right? Because we don't think of that way. We think, you know, myself included, oh, I know, I know BSF or I know Cavestro. And but somebody who has no idea who Cavestro is or Carpenter is is gonna Google Cavestro, right? And if if they Google Cavestro and they see a bunch of stuff that's not related to them or is confusing or isn't the message you want, then you're hurting you, you're kind of putting one hand tied behind your back with it. So absolutely. You know, I mean, how you're, do you, how do you you're, get to them ahead of time? I guess that's right. The so. sale begins long before you've ever had a conversation. Right. And so getting, yeah, figuring out how to make sure your, your reputation is out there, your product information, what you need, et cetera. Is, I think it's, it's an evolution, right? From a consumer perspective, it's far ahead. There are some chemical companies that are figuring it out, but there's still, you know, work to be done, I think for everyone. Well, and I, I think it's in an industrial world, it's a little bit we're behind the curve because we really look at it as a B2B, right? And and those kinds of things are more viewed as appealing to the consumer and not thinking of, a, let's say, a purchasing agent as a consumer as much as they are as, you know, yeah. that kind of a thing. Well, so I think you talk about, you know, you mentioned it being a people to people business, 
And at the end of the day, you're purchasing agent. I would agree with you. We don't really think of those concepts. And we tend to think of, again, the B2C versus B2B and what roles does that play? But, you know, we're all people. So, you know, if, if I don't know, you know, a particular company, you know, P2 chemical or whatever, what am I going to do? I'm going to go to the internet and do some research and, you know, see what they're about before that person even shows up to say, hey, I'm here to tell you about the company. Right. So your presence has to kind of reinforce. And we went through that was another thing we did earlier this year is we sat down and looked at our vision, our mission, our values and reaffirmed them and, and adjusted them so that we can be clearer on our communication of, of who is Carpenter. Right. And, and even encouraging, you know, which is hard as an, an old sales guy is encouraging them to say, look, don't pursue business if those people don't share the same values as Carpenter. That's okay. They may have a completely different business model and it works for them and they can go get their phone from somebody else. That's okay, right? I mean, that's really hard for a salesperson to do because they just want to sell more product, right? Yeah. And- but it's also really powerful, right? So choosing to do business for the right reason is really powerful and it actually creates more business. Right. So, I mean, I think you have to sometimes turn down the customers that are bad fits for the customers that are great fits that are going to grow with you and, and continue forward. And like I said, it's people get it confused because if a customer is a bad fit, it doesn't mean that they're a bad customer, right? It just means that they're asking for things or they want things that you're not really set up to do, right? And somebody else in the marketplace may be better set up to do the business in the way they want it. And it's a more successful partnership and that's okay. It doesn't mean that either party involved in that is bad or wrong or any or something nefarious. It just means that like if you value certain things, like if you highly value, you know, you got to have on-time delivery or something like that, then certain companies that focus on that are going to be better geared to meeting your needs and you're going to be more satisfied with that person as your as your supplier whereas if somebody else says, "Look, I don't care if it shows up on Monday at 8, as long as it shows up sometime this week, I'm okay." Well, then you're not going to generate a lot of friction and frustration between missed expectations. You know? Yeah, so. absolutely. Absolutely. Friction is a good word. I mean, trying to create that fi- frictionless experience for your customers is critical. And that goes along with you know the way you do business. You started talking earlier in our conversation about the fact that with Mr. Polly's passing, it's you, know, you as the CEO, your executive team and the board, and you're really trying to, to come together and figure out maybe the new version of Carpenter, the next version of Carpenter and how you go forward. So how is that playing out for you? How are you guys establishing who you are and how you want to continue growing and going forward into the future? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. You know, really what we started to do was we got together kind of an executive level management, maybe 15 people. And we said, hey, how do we feel about what we've published and what we have out there in terms of our core values and mission, vision, purpose kind of things. We felt like we wanted to refresh some of those. So we actually went through some of that process. We actually also surveyed our own people on that or in the process of surveying our own people with all that to say, hey, what are your opinions on carbon or what do we want to reinforce? How do we message that well internally? Kind of getting us ready right for Rectocell, right? Because, and the nice thing is a lot of their statements of their values are similar to ours. It's not quite the same words, but similar themes and stuff. And so we're trying to think a lot about how we harmonize all that messaging. Really, you know, if we assume the deal is going to close in, you know, certainly by June, but maybe April, right? So then you're rolling out to 
the new entity, what you are and who you are. And then I think once you roll it out internally, then communicating that well to the customers rather than looking at it and saying, you know, we want them to splash out a website or a, a hashtag to the customers. But I think it's much better, as we talked about, that I'm a people to people kind of person. It's much better to have somebody who's been their salesperson for a while saying, look, I just came from meetings or I understand what we're doing and this is how we're communicating it to the marketplace. So. Absolutely. I mean, I think that's, I think that's great because I do believe personally strategy, strategy change, all of this is really personal. You have to get your team really connected with that so that they can live it, influence it, and then share that. Right. So that's, that's awesome. So what are your top priorities for 2022? What are we going to see? What are we going to see coming out from you guys? You know, I, I think always, whether whatever year it is, I would say in, in, in a generic term would be, we want to be better than we were last year. Right. And we want to do things better than we did. And really, when I say do things better, it really centers around how do we do better for our people and how do we do better for our customers? I think those are the two constituent groups that I worry a lot about, right? And how do we do better for them? Because then I think that just leads to better business overall and you know, better organization. But you know, we we've got the rec to sell deal to close and to to integrate and to try and make that into a successful partnership, the one plus one equals two and a half or three kind of scenarios that that we really want to have. And and you know, how do we do that well, right? And focused on that. But we're not focused on that solely, right? We have an existing business with existing customers and we can't drop the ball with them. So we need to make sure we're still listening to those customers and not getting too distracted. And which was nice because, you know, the board during this process was asking, hey, is this eating up a lot of people's time and is it a distraction and everything else? And I can say, look, the people that we had in North America involved in it we're not the people that always are running our day-to-day business. Yeah, myself or our COO, yes, we're involved, but I wasn't pulling marketing people or manufacturing people from the US to do the due diligence over in Europe, right? So we were able to keep those things semi-separate so that customers over here didn't see any drop and change in what they would consider normal from us. So you know, I think that's probably the goal is to try and make sure that those customers who are our customers today still feel well taken care of, right? Going forward. And and then, you know, I'm sure there'll be some chemical fun throughout the year. There you can never predict what it's gonna be, but something will happen along and the yeah, lines. Yeah, let's and, let's hope things start lining out. Right. I think that's the hope. I'm not sure it'll occur. I was talking to somebody about supply chain yesterday who kind of said, Yeah, it's gonna be messy all through the year. I'm like, oh, yeah, we can only we had some, you know, we were really fortunate in a lot of ways with that because we have some really good people. We have a gal, Jamie, in, in procurement here. And she, I mean, I think every day she was scrambling around, you know, moving stuff just to keep everything running. And, and one plant has this and the other needs that. And we did a lot of intercompany transfers that you wouldn't normally do. And she did a great job with it, as well as the people on the ground. But the other nice thing is we had gotten ourselves into doing some of our own trucking of chemicals, even. Like we have our own to be able to pick up TDI because rather than wait seven days for a rail car to go from Houston to Temple, Texas, it's easier just to run a truck, right? And BSF or others or Covestro had gotten out of that business, right? They third-partied it to somebody else. So we said, well, what if we put our own trucks in, a couple of drivers that are carpenter people? Well, turns out when you have shortages and, and you know those guys weren't just going to Temple, Texas, they were running up to Indiana or they're running over here, right? So it was an advantage for us to have our own logistics. Interesting. In, in a small way on it. I don't think we're looking at saying we want our own giant logistics, but it definitely helped us 
fill in the gaps, right? And yeah, so, in the unique pieces and places that you need it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I think that we'll see a little more of that. But, you know, the goals I think for this year are to try to get better as an organization, you know, do things as, as we see it, what we'd say, you know, better, faster, responsive. I think, you know, our general philosophy of being adaptable. And yes, with the acquisition, we're going to take on some debt, but but we still have good financial flexibility. So we're really not having to pin ourselves against a wall. We can invest in the the new rectocell plants, you know, to get them to more efficient than they are today. And, you know, so we feel like that gives us a lot of tools in the toolbox, I guess. Awesome. That sounds great. Well, I am looking forward to seeing how this all plays out for you guys this year. So Brad, thanks for joining us today on The Chemical Show. It's a pleasure as always. And uh, I look forward to other episodes in 2022 with other people and hearing what they're talking about. So thanks. I think there's going to be a lot of good stuff happening. So thanks for joining us today. And thanks for everyone for listening and keep listening, following and sharing the podcast. Thanks. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.